0: This is the current federal tax developments for the week of August the 15th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers and I'm broadcasting this week again from Phoenix like normal and we actually do have something that happened this week. This week the House went ahead and passed the Inflation Adjustment Act of 2022, passing the version the Senate had passed. So this week We're going to take a little break from going through the weekly update details and try to do a very quick summary of some of the key items of actual interest, I believe you'll find in this particular bill. So, for instance, we'll discuss the increase in funding at the IRS, and uh, that's gotten a lot of publicity in the press, obviously, but we'll talk about that a little bit, uh, what's there, where money's going, and maybe some of the problems they're likely to run into. We'll talk about the continuation of the 2021-2022 premium tax credit rules. We'll talk about tax credits on clean, el- clean energy vehicles. We started came in with one credit on, you know, basically electric cars. And now we come out of here with three of them. We'll talk about the expansion and extension of the various residential energy credits. And finally, we'll also talk about some of the odd credit transfer provisions that we have In this bill. With that, let's quickly review the act itself. This again is H.R. 5376, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And on the 12th of August, the House adopted the Senate version. It passed on a 220 to 207 party line vote as part of the reconciliation process. So, exactly the same way we got the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and just like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, essentially it was passed. Well, in this case, absolutely was passed all members of one party voting for it effectively, all members of another party voting against it. We also had the fact, as I said, that the House made no changes to the Senate bill. Because of that, we don't need a conference committee. The bill goes straight to the President, who has stated he will sign the bill. Assuming he does that, right, we don't get any last-minute surprises here, we should be able to go forward and take a look at what is in this bill. Now one thing I want to notice right up front, we probably are still going to get an extenders package later in the year. One of the key things we're missing currently is a fix for the amortization of research and development costs. That is not in this bill, Uh, if it's going to come, it needs to come in another bill. Most likely it will come, I think, I think we're still on that side of it. but it's much more likely to come in a lame duck session or even the first part of next year's sessions. They could retroactively fix it. Congress is known to delay things till the last minute. They have an election this year. Clearly that's more important than anything else going on anywhere. So yeah, they need to get reelected. So they're not gonna spend a lot of time on this stuff initially. Well, the thing that got a lot of discussion was the actual IRS funding. And so I wanted to give you some numbers that were put together by Kay Bell on her website, uh, Don't Mess With Taxes, on the 31st of July, and none of this stuff changed since then. It was an article entitled The IRS Gets A Lot More Money Under Inflation Reduction Bill. Now, what it is, the IRS's allocation here, is $4,750,700,000, okay, all kinds of odd numbers here, for business system modernization. Obviously, probably necessary. If you've ever dealt with some of the IRS systems, you discover that, yeah, they appear to be more than a little bit dated. uh, $3,181,500,000 for taxpayer services. Unfortunately, that is the smallest of the allocations here in the IRS group. And I think a lot of us probably believe that they need to put a little bit more into that than they did. But we also have just the practical problem of how quickly they could ramp things up and whether we can fix the current backlog by hiring more people right now the question is probably not unless it becomes so systemic that you know they're never getting out from under it without extra people but as far as if we plan to have this fixed by the end of the year which our you know the IRS commissioner claims would happen then This is probably not going to do much good, won't harm, probably won't do much good. $25,326,400,000 for operations support inside the IRS, processing and other such things, which obviously, yes, it'd be nice to catch up with the work. I would say that'd be useful. And then $45,637,400,000 for enforcement. That's where the story comes in about the 87,000 agents that will be hired. Now, these are all numbers over 10 years and the hiring is over 10 years. So it's not as if 87,000 people are gonna show up on the IRS's doorstep uh, the day this is signed. My guess is, as most of us who are trying to hire in accounting know right now, uh, finding 87,000 people who have even, you know, I don't care what you say as required, you know, if they have even the base level of competency I don't think you're going to find 87,000 of them. It's just difficult to find 87,000, probably even if you just got rid of the competency issue at all. We don't care what you are. So my guess is it's going to take quite a bit of time to ramp that up. So I don't think I'm currently worried about the IRS knocking down the door of my clients offices anytime soon. I think that it's probably going to be a slow process at best. Uh, So I'm not losing much sleep at night over this one in terms of that suddenly it's going to be all these exams in my client's face. I have a feeling that's not happening. Let's go ahead and talk about what changed in the law. First thing is we have this IRS Section 36B was revised by the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And what's going to happen here is we're going to undo the inflation adjusted tables the IRS had released the prior week. In revenue procedure 2020 through 34. Those tables, if you remember them, uh, would have looked like this for qualifying for the premium tax credit next year. Those are your percentages of household income that you would be required to pay to get the second lowest cost single, second lowest cost silver plan on the exchange, required to vote that percentage of income. And there would be no credit allowed whatsoever once your income was more than 400% of the federal poverty level. Well, what we're going to have now is we're going to go back to the tables we used the last two years, which were significantly lower percentages. In this case, as you'll note, we go instead of 9.12% at the top end, we're at 8.5%. And notice that we close out here with 400% and higher rather than just 400% being the cutoff. So the maximum amount that a person would have to devote for household income would be 8.5% to obtain the second lowest cost silver package available on the exchange in question for that person. And we no longer have the rule going away. You know, essentially that's going to say the 400% of federal poverty line cliff is also gone. So most likely clients will qualify for a larger credit, they would have qualified for a credit under the prior law, and we're going to have people that qualify who would not have otherwise qualified because of the basic issue here at the 400% of adjusted gross, of modified adjusted gross income doesn't come into play anymore. Now, the employer affordability percentage does not change, so that's still revenue procedure 2022-34 20, levels of 9.12%. So that means that you could have somebody who is offered affordable coverage by their employer, but still qualify for a credit here. That won't work against the employer uh, because you know the, the the fact that they were offered, assuming you offer everybody affordable coverage, you're not going to be subjected to a penalty at that level. But that is where we stand at this point. Now, Congress went back to the business loss limitation of 461L1. You may remember that provision was added by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It limited net business loss deductions on individual return to no more than $250,000 for a single individual, $500,000 for a married couple filing a joint return. It had an inflation adjustment as well, so every year that number goes up slightly. It was supposed to go away after 2025, but everybody knew the dirty little secret of budget gimmicks of this sort. And that in reality, it had been put in there so that they have at least some the same pay for is available to cut back the cost when they look to extend provisions that are taxpayer-friendly of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act when we get to the end of 2025. Well, unfortunately, what was discovered here is you better hope your party never loses control of both chambers of Congress and the White House in the interim if you leave a money raiser like this lying around because not unexpectedly, the Democrats had already used it once to extend this by one year for the American Rescue Plan Act. And in what was an interesting aside, as we got into the amendments at the very end of the uh, process in the Senate, after Senator Thune's amendment was adopted, that we're still not sure if it really gets rid of partnership equity funds, no longer cause a problem under the corporate minimum tax, There's been discussion, was a nice article this weekend in Tax Notes Today that raised that question of whether it really, really will solve anything or not. But Senator Thune's amendment initially would have extended the state and local tax cap for another year. And as a practical matter, I suspect that was put in there because Senator Thune knew that that would likely cause problems with the Democrats in the House who are already grumbling about agreeing to a program that didn't reduce the state local tax cap issue, and this could potentially blow the whole thing up. But he knew he had the votes, which he did. Well, that's when Senator Warner came back in, undid that part, and then came back and said and put this in that would extend this. So now we're going to add two more years through 2028. Bottom line, I don't expect this thing to ever, ever, ever go away. I think it is being very you're being rather naive about how the whole budget process works to believe that this is going away anytime soon without some major league uh, bills coming through that, yeah, and especially that don't need money. And every time one, either, either party does this, they need some money, whether it is to pay for a favorite tax break or whether it is to pay for some program to be spending, they still need the funds. So my guess is, this thing is not really temporary this is just a budget play they went and took the money that would have been taken anyway but that's okay it's a budget gimmick and frank and as i said it's a budget gimmick that simply reused the other party's budget gimmick which then they have more trouble complaining about it's wonderful how we get with pol- with politics like this but don't really end up doing anything that we claim to be doing in that realm we also have a change to the payroll tax credit Uh, to a payroll tax credit related to the payroll, the credit against payroll taxes for the research credit. Previously, a small employer could claim a $250,000 of their research credit against payroll taxes rather than income taxes. It was pointed out that a lot of small companies that they're doing research only, quite often end up with no income tax liability or not very much. So the theory was, well, it doesn't give much of an incentive if the research credit can only be used against income taxes so they allowed, if you're a small company, you're allowed to use it against payroll taxes. Now, what's happening now is that we're going to go ahead and effective it for tax years beginning after December 31st, 2022. We're going to get another $250,000 that can be used against the employer Medicare taxes. Uh, you know, when we have this research credit and we want to make the election to apply it against payroll taxes. We also have some significant changes to the non-business energy property tax credit It was modified and extended. It's generally effective for property placed in service after December 31st, 2022 and before January 1st of 2033. However, we do extend the 2021 version of this credit, which had expired at the end of 21 for one more year to cover 22. So this year we will work under the old rules, Next year, we will go to some very different rules. Now we do rename this to the Home Energy Efficiency Home Improvement Credit. The credit is equal to 30% of qualifying expenses. And we added to the list of qualifying expenses, a Home Energy Audit. Uh, it's capped at $150 that we can consider and there are various other special uh, issues with those audits we get into, but. It does allow somebody to come in and make recommendations on the home, and it'd be a credit based on that. Big change here is that the limits become annual and not lifetime, so that means that this can be repeated every year. May, for most part, the credit's limited to $1,200 uh, with the following sub limits no more than $600 can be for qualified energy property. Exterior windows and skylights are also capped at no more than 600. In addition, we're looking at doors cannot be more than $250. In the case of a single exterior door and $500 for all exterior doors and the home energy audit can be no more than 150 of the credit. So at the end of the day, you know, we're looking at that's how you build it. Now, again, all of these are the max for each of these subcategories. You still can't go above 1200. Unless, and now we have one other special category, notwithstanding that main limit, the maximum credit for heat for a heat pump and heat pump, water heaters, and biomass stoves and boilers, that goes up to $2,000. Now some other changes for the parts of this we know about. Uh, Roofs are no longer building envelope components, but air sealing materials and or systems are. So that's part of what qualifies for this um we also have you know we talked about that issue we did remove the principal residence requirement remember previously this only worked on your if paid for your principal residence and we looked at the section 121 exclusion rules to figure out if that was a principal residence for you now we're going to find out that beginning in 2025 or i should say now it just needs to be used by the taxpayer as a residence now remember Everything here, everything here basically doesn't take effect until 2023. So make sure you don't get confused and think somehow it's going to apply this year. Your clients don't get confused. Also, we're going to have another change down the line. Beginning in 2025, apparently Congress is concerned that people were claiming these credits for for property that didn't qualify. Beginning in 2025, you'll have to get from your client a manufacturer-provided identification number that'll be unique to each type of item, you know, each each category. So a certain type of, let's say, insulation, certain type of air conditioner, et cetera, that qualifies that will have to be issued under rules the IRS will put together by then, and that will have to go on the tax return or your client will not be able to get a credit. So that'll be another fun thing to run down when you're trying to do a return. Previously, this was the Residential Energy Efficiency Property Credit. We have the new Residential Clean Energy Credit, Section 25D. This one's generally effective for property placed in service after December 31st 2021. But the battery technology changes take effect for expenditures made after 12-31-22. These are the solar energy and other type uh, power issues that get in there. The rate increases from 30% to 26 and then again in the future begins to phase down but we're gonna have a 30% credit there. We're also gonna add battery storage technology expenditures explicitly after December 31st, 2022. And there'll be certain requirements that they have to meet in that scenario. We also have the fact that some of the business credits can be sold and that could be including individual taxpayers could be on the receiving end. Now this is effective for tax years beginning after December 31st, 2022. If you are certain tax exempt entities, governments, most tax exempt orgs, uh, you know certain uh, cooperative selling electricity, uh, and certain other categories, you can elect to treat the credit, which is non-refundable. These credits are non-refundable. You could elect to treat them as a payment of income taxes. Now, since you don't have any income tax for the year in question, that would make it fully refundable. Or if you have any income taxes, for something like unrelated business income tax, well, you know, it would offset that directly, but it would have offset anyway. So by making it a payment, we effectively make it refundable to those organizations. Other entities can essentially transfer. Now, each one of these has a list of credits. They are similar but not identical. So you want to make sure which list you're going off of. But any entity that's not in the first list of the exempt orgs, Those entities will then be able to sell their credits, essentially. Well, what they really do is transfer them to other taxpayers. So in theory, I suppose you could just take your credit off of your C-Corporation. Maybe it's not going to show any income, a closely held C-Corp, and just transfer that to the individual shareholders. That would be a possible way of doing it. Uh, It's also likely going to be that these credits will be sold. There'll be a market where you would sell them at a discount if you can't otherwise use them and people who owe tax would buy them to take advantage of that discount so that would set up a market this is an alternative to making the credits refundable so they basically have said you know you got to get this you got to buy it i think part of the theory is probably by putting them on the market and selling them well you're actually putting at risk if these are bad the buyers of the credit because they're going to have to assume they're right which means they would have an incentive to go after the sellers so I guess the theory is it changes some enforcement issues. But it does allow those who would have no or insufficient income tax liability to still take advantage of these credits, quite a few of which are meant to incentivize companies to begin going down the path of creating these technologies. So the idea being, you know, they're probably not gonna have a lot of tax owed up front, so we're gonna put it this way and hopefully get them something to work with. Now let's go to the vehicle credits because these are loads of fun under this. We ended up, we started with one electric vehicle credit, right, remember that one, it phased out after you sold too many vehicles. And we had uh, Tesla and GM, we're already in the phased out mode. Now we're gonna get three of them. In addition to the existing credit at IRS section 30 cap D, we're gonna get credits at 25 cap E, which will be a used credit, credit for a used uh, clean vehicle and a credit section 45W, which will be a commercial version of the credit. Now, key thing to watch on this, this is effective for vehicles acquired after December 31st, 2022. There is a special set of rules on all of these, or I should say, at least on the first two, I should say, that allow a transfer of the credit to the dealer, which would reduce the purchase price right away in theory, but there is a big risk there that we'll talk about here, um, that will not take effect until the following year. So it'll be 24. So in 23, we'll have a credit, but no way to get it prepaid by assigning it to the dealer so that you'd be able to use it to buy your electric car. In 2024, we will be able to essentially, we may be getting a $7,500 credit on the car. We could go then and say, oh, we assign it to the dealer, And the dealer is then required to either give us the $7,500 in cash or apply it as a down payment or a partial payment on the car. So essentially would reduce the cost of the car. So that's coming up. Now, let's start first with the update to the existing credit. This is the new clean vehicle credit. This is for one nobody else has used. Now, we used to have a way of computing max credit that looked at battery capacity and a base amount on top of that. We're going to get rid of that testing mechanism and now you're going to qualify the credit will be maximum $7500. Half of that credit will be allowed if you meet if the vehicle meets certain battery requirements which require mainly to try to get these built in the US. And then the other or North America at least and the other one will be a critical materials requirement trying to assume that a long trying to ensure a long laundry list, of materials that are critical uh, for the batteries and are considered probably national security risks not to have access to them if we do have a ton of electric vehicles, Uh, we have to ensure that those also come from friendly countries with certain special rules that not only deny this, but could conceivably deny it entirely if any of the materials come from certain really, really risky countries under, under our list. So, you know, be ready for that. It is, there has been some discussion whether these standards can be easily met. And so whether, you know, how many cars will really be able to be sold and still meet these requirements as they come in. They phase in over time. So it's not, as, it's not as significant of a restriction in the early years, but we have to have more and more of this, either, you know, more and more of the battery built in the US, more and more of the materials from the US or friendly countries, uh, that happens over time. Also, the final assembly of the vehicle must take place in North America. So you can't get your Tesla from the plant in China or wherever you're gonna to have to, you know, in essence, uh, Elon's gonna to have to build the ones they wanna give the credit on in the US. At least final assembly has to be at a US plant. Now there is, here's what it's gonna get a little weird. I don't know about you, but most of my clients that have got electric vehicle credits have been relatively you know, high net income taxpayers. Right. I mean, I've not seen many people. You know, I've seen a lot of interest in electric vehicles from taxpayers who have, you know, high six figures, mid six figures salaries. Not seen a ton from people who are making, you know, somewhere down in the low six figures, you know, or below six figures. Haven't really seen any of those people run out to get the cars. Well, now there's going to be a modified adjusted gross income limit for the new clean vehicle credit. The only modification here is generally the foreign income exclusions and housing exclusions have to be added back, as well as any exclusions related to U.S. territories. The maximum amount, you can have modified AGI uh, of over $300,000 if you're filing married, joint, or as a surviving spouse. You can not have more than $225,000 if you're filing head of household. And you cannot go over 150000 if you're anything else like single or married filing separate. Now, the one interesting quirk is, though, you can meet this modified AGI limit either in the current year or in the immediately preceding year. So once you get your return done for 22, in theory, if you're below these limits on your modified AGI for 22, then you know you can qualify in 23 regardless of how much money you make. So we do always have two years to work with here. This also means that you may be able through planning to shift income around just enough, maybe accelerate income or, you know, push it forward. But any event, move things around enough in order to get a year below 250 to be able to claim the credit. So that is in the planning side of it. But it is a cliff limit, which is bad news because that does mean if it fouls up and you go $1 over the limit, you're going to be writing a check back probably for $7500. Okay. There's also a limit on the new vehicles on the manufacturer suggested retail price of the vehicle. If that exceeds certain limits by even a dollar, you cannot get the credit. Generally, for vans, SUVs and pickup trucks, our limitation is $80,000. For any other vehicles, sedans and the like, limitation is 55000 So again, your cars can't go above those levels. If you price Teslas and some other uh, electric vehicles recently, you'll note that it is very possible to get well above these levels. So, you know, any cars are going to be designing for the credits are going to have to come down. I suspect Congress believes that makes sense in their mind on the theory that, you know, the the companies are concentrating on the high end, probably because that was who was buying them. So what they're gonna do is say, no, 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 if you wanna use the credit as an incentive, you gotta bring the price down in order to make that work. Now, the credit can be assigned to the dealer. So what you can do is you can say, okay, I'm not gonna take the credit on my 1040. I will let the dealer take the credit. The IRS will set up a system to allow the dealer to be paid, right? And they have to either pay you, and it's always placed as a payment. But the payment can be a literal check, which is unlikely. Or it can be a reduction in, you know, what's essentially going to be treated as a down payment or part of a down payment, treated as a partial payment on the vehicle. All of those are allowed payment mechanisms. But note one thing, this is kind of like the premium tax credit if your client turns out doesn't qualify because they went over the limit they're going to have to pay back that credit so you probably want to warn your clients who may go out and do this and who have income that could go over these limitations Uh, you may want to warn them about this rule and that we want to make sure that you understand you know first thing is do we know the prior year's return income yet so, you know, if they want to run out in January and buy it, we're probably not going to know either year's income for sure. And then secondly, understand that if that prior year is above the limit, that if the year of the credit doesn't drop below that limit, they will be writing a $7,500 check. So, you know, they, they might want to wait until after a year they've suppressed the income down enough to buy the vehicle in order to get a credit. The credits will no longer apply for vehicles placed in service after 2032, that should say. So it should be 2032 is limit for vehicles placed in service. Now, the next credit, 25E, is for a previously owned clean vehicle. The credit is lesser of $4,000 or 30% of the vehicle sales price. It must have a model year at least two years earlier than the year the credit is being claimed for it generally must meet the clean vehicle credit rule or be a clean cell fuel vehicle, self-fuel vehicle, with a gross vehicle weight rating of less than 14,000 pounds. All of those are required to make this go. There are other requirements too on this before you, on the clean vehicle. The maximum sales price is $25,000. So, you know, if somebody's gonna sell you a used Tesla for $30,000, uh, that's not going to qualify. You're going to have to get one at 25000 or below as the maximum sales price. Okay, only individual qualifies for the credit and you're not eligible to claim this credit if you're eligible to be claimed as a dependent on somebody else's return. This is not one where you can simply elect not to claim the dependent. That only really works for the education credits. Right there, Congress specifically worded it that way. This one says eligible will be claimed, not that you were. So if their eligible will be claimed on mom and dad's return, we can't just have the kid buy the car, the used car, and take this credit on it. If their eligible will be claimed on mom and dad's return, that's it. Tough luck. There are modified AGI limits here. They're much lower, about they're half of what they are for the new vehicle credit. So that means $150,000 for joint returns or surviving spouses. $112,500 for head of household. And for anybody else, the limitation is $75,000. Right, so we have all of those neat little rules there for how this one's going to work. We also have an assignment to the dealer option here. You can still, just like the others on the used car, I can assign the $4,000 if that's my credit to the dealer. And the dealer can then turn around and use that as a down, you know, quote, make that payment back to me. It's used as a down payment, reduce the purchase price, whatever in that regard. So we have that option. It does also have the same recapture rule. So be aware if you go over the limits, remember these limits for this one are much lower than the others. These are gonna be much easier to go over the top on. So, you know, I'd, I'd warn clients much more apt about this one. A lot of clients, I either know they're going to be well over 300 and it's like, you're never going to qualify for this. Or, you know, they generally come in well under 300. So unless they have a really good year, we're probably going to not have a problem. And if they're mainly wage earners, we can figure out pretty quickly if there's going to be a problem. We can pretty quickly figure out if there was a problem in what would be the prior year, even if that return is not yet done. So that's relatively simple. Finally, there is the credit for the uh, for the commercial vehicle. So this commercial vehicle credit is the lesser of 15% or 30% of the basis of the asset. Uh, 30% is if the vehicle has no gasoline or diesel powered engine in it. So essentially a hybrid vehicle can get 15%, a pure electric vehicle could get 30% of the basis or you know, if less, what's called the incremental cost of the vehicle. This is comparing the cost of the, what you purchased, the vehicle or asset you purchased. Compare that against the cost of the vehicle that if you had bought it with just a gas or diesel engine. So you have to identify a comparable, the comparable vehicle with the bad engine and come up now with your incremental cost. The maximum credit is generally $7,500 unless the weight rating is greater than 14,000 pounds, where the maximum credit is $40,000, right? It has a special definition of what qualifies, but generally the clean fuel things qualify. Uh, You can't double dip, so you can't get the individual clean fuel credit, then then say I'm using my Schedule C and claim this one, you claim one or the other. That's gonna be the key. Interesting thing to note here is that this does not have any sort of income limit so I wouldn't be surprised to see people put these cars who have income problems inside of their uh S corporation or what you know S corporation partnerships whatever type of business commercial use they'll argue for. That opens up a whole Pandora's box of whether they're truly using it for business purposes where they qualify but yeah, just be aware. That's that's going to be one of those things to watch for. Finally, I want to close out on a couple of things that are of interest mainly to larger companies or public companies, but it's gotten a lot of press, so I want to mention it. Uh, there is a minimum tax on corporations. This is a C-corp tax. So I think right away for a lot of you who do mainly closely held companies or you're you know, you're a controller of a closely held company, you're like, well, you know, yeah, I'm not going to worry about that. We're not a C-corp We're a pass-through. Okay. Not your problem. If you are a C corp, then it is imposed on what's called adjusted financial statement income, and the financial statements we look at is your applicable financial statement under Section 461. Remember, we have a set of rules there for what's an AFs uh, that that was used for purposes of determining the uh, 25 million dollar uh, and it's adjusted for inflation, where you could be a small accounting uh, small accounting method taxpayer, where you could use like cash basis automatically. Well, now we're going to use this for a much bigger group, shall we say? But we're going to identify our AFS. Uh, since most of the ones involved here are going to be are going to be publicly traded, certainly audited, uh, I expect that we're not going to have trouble finding an AFS in most cases. Now, the key adjustment, which probably defangs this thing very much, is that maker's depreciation is put in in place of book depreciation. As you might guess, going to makers is probably the reason why we hear about all these companies that paid no taxes, right? I mean, you know, if you're buying all this big, heavy equipment, getting 100% bonus depreciation, you're probably not paying much in taxes as long as you continue to be growing and investing. Well, in any event, we have that. But you will get 15% of this book income. And first thing, as I said, you got to be a C Corp. But even then, it only applies if your average adjusted financial statement income for the prior three years is over $1 billion. So again, I'm not going to run into that in my practice. I have a feeling a lot of people, I think there's going to be a limited group of you who would run into it. And If you're running into that, you really need to do a deep dive into this all the way. There are many quirks and issues and odd things you want to dive into it deep. My theory is either this is the only thing in the bill you're interested in or you know, or maybe, well, what this and maybe one other weird, one of the energy credit options because you might build that sort of thing uh, or you don't care at all about it. Another similar one that probably won't matter to most of us is a 1% excise tax on stock repurchases. Again, you got to be a C-Corp. So doesn't apply again to our S-Corps or our partnerships. Well, I guess you don't have to be a C-Corp. S-Corp could work, but not likely to, be not at all, because you have to be publicly traded. So S-Corps can't be publicly traded, right? It just won't work that way. So you have to be a publicly traded corporation for this to apply. There are a number of exemptions that can qualify. So, you know, you'll you'll look down that. It applies to repurchases after December 31st, 2022. Now, in addition to this, we have a lot of very, very industry-specific energy credit options. I mean, they get wildly specific based on the industry, the specific type of clean fuel we're looking at, how we produce it, et cetera. Many, pro- most of them relate to the production of these items. Uh, so, you know, not really something we'd want to spend some time on. Probably the one you might want to look at are the changes on Section 48's energy credit, business energy credit. And that's only if you're already using it. Also, 179D for energy efficient buildings might also have an issue there But otherwise, probably not a lot there you're going to deal with. Most likely, the most often you're going to deal with those credits is going to be on that issue. Once there becomes a market for selling them is clients that want to buy those credits. Maybe, you know, think that that makes sense. They're being marketed depending on how they're marketed and who they're marketed to. You might have a client want to buy such a credit. So we'll see how that works. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of August the 15th, 2022 as I said, the president probably will sign the bill this week. Everybody expects him to. Uh, Of course, it's always theoretically possible he won't sign it at all. But I'd be very surprised if that happened. But if it does, then we'll come back next week and tell you, don't worry about this. You know, we'll just keep going. We probably will do some sessions that will look at each of these things in a lot more detail. Uh, You know, certainly it'll be in our tax updates for the year. But we'll see about doing some other things that maybe could do a little deeper dive into these provisions. So you may want to take a look and uh, you know keep an eye out for us doing any of those sessions going around. You can also uh, catch me. I do look at the Connect sites on the Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, and Washington Society websites, as well as glance at anything is posted up in Idaho's discussion group for the Idaho Society of CPAs. So you can take there. You can also contact me, Ed Zollers at currentfulltaxedhelpers.com. Otherwise, take care. Uh, Hopefully you're having a good week. We're coming now. We're within one month of the first drop dead absolute deadline for our pass-throughs. Our S-Corporations and Partnerships come up on September 15th, our trusts on September 30th, and the individuals on October 17th this year, right? I remember my dates. I don't think either of the others fall on a Saturday, so I I think we're going to be good on those two, which is the 15th. But all of that parts gets going, and then we get into our getting ready for the next tax season mode. So until next week, uh, take care, uh, have fun with all your tax work for this week, and we'll see you next week on Current Federal Tax Developments.